You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome into the Game Plan Live, but we're going to start with a little breaking news. Somebody, well, it's not really breaking anymore. It is 9 o'clock, 9.15 at night. Uh, Everybody that's watching this, I'm sure you've seen the news. Tez Walker ruled ineligible. Long time ago, I learned about not worrying about, worry about the people you have, not the people you do not have. Well... North Carolina will not have Tez Walker in 2023. At this point, Greg Barnes has been the expert in everything NCA related. Everything NCA related. Greg, I'll tell you an interesting story before we get rolling. Of course, we're sponsored by Johnny T-Shirt and JohnnyT-Shirt.com. In July of 2010, I believe it was, I got a phone call from one Greg Barnes. I was at the beach. Um, Greg said the NCAA is on campus at Chapel Hill. Remember that, Greg? I do remember that. And uh, flash to today, I see that Tez Walker ruling come out, and I'm at the beach. <laughs> a little bit of deja vu. I'm trying to get just a day away before hecticness. Greg, this is an absolute joke, in my opinion. Um you see things much more clearly than most of us when we're talking about the NCA. You wrote a great article a couple of days ago, sort of detailing everything Tez has been through. This is a young man who everybody here knows, committed to East Tennessee State, blew his knee out, never never enrolled. They pulled his scholarship. He transferred or goes to Central. They don't have a season. He he practices in the spring on the hope that they're going to have a season. Transfers to Kent State, plays a couple of years, transfers to North Carolina. Everybody knows how it goes from there. Greg, what did you learn over the last couple of days that maybe surprised you or maybe you didn't know before you really started digging in to this process that the NCAA loves to marry themselves to that ultimately um, today turned out that Tez Walker will be ineligible? Uh, new boss, same as the old boss. <laughs> and that's, um, you know, the NCAA, because of court action the last couple of years, they've really had to do a little bit of a change in how they view student athletes. 
Uh, people may not know, but, but Walter Byers was the longtime NCAA head. Uh, and in his autobiography, he talked about how they crafted the term student athlete to get around labor and employment law. Um, so we've known for a very long time kind of how the NCAA uh, views student athletes. Uh, but because of the recent legislation and because of a lot of the heat that has been applied, I mean, we've even had a Supreme Court justice blast NCAA, which is kind of unheard of. They've started to do things uh, a little bit more with the student athlete in mind. NIL, the transfer portal, the one-time transfer exception. All these things have kind of been forced upon the NCAA. And yet last summer, the NCAA was was – barreling toward allowing kids to transfer as many times as they wanted to without losing eligibility, which is what grad transfers do right now. Uh, and they received a lot of pushback from their member institutions, primarily because coaching staffs did not like kids transferring all over the place. Uh, and because of that decision, which came down in August of 2022, uh, they decided at that point in time they needed to kind of toughen up the transfer waiver process. And they had it in mind that they were going to, you know, apply it to the 2023-24 academic year, which made sense in August of 2022. But in classic NCAA fashion, they don't actually pass the legislation until after the spring semester had already started. And that's kind of where we get to with Taz Walker. Um, and really, to answer your question, Tommy, uh, what really surprised me, is if you look at the NCAA process that they put in place, it kind of makes sense, right, in terms of they want to be very clear that, hey, you have one time, you can transfer wherever you want to transfer. If you don't, you know, if a coach changes uh, is a problem, you can leave. If you want to get closer to home, you can leave. Whatever the case may be, you have one time transfer for free. Um, but prior to January 11th, uh, while there were some, some plans in place, they were very lax about how they applied those things. But in January 11th, they said, okay, well, these are, these are three things that you have to meet if you want to get a transfer waiver as a multi-year transfer. Uh, and one of those was mental health. And so regardless of, look, they put in the legislation two days after Tez Walker enrolled at Carolina. That right there, retroactively fitting legislation to him, uh, he should be grandfathered in. And that was the case that was made during his hearing this morning. You mentioned Central. They had the fall and spring season canceled. He practiced during spring practice, and that was it. That's a good debate. That was also in the, the topic of discussion for this morning. But the mental health was the number one key. Uh, and really what took place is because of how the new process is written, you have to say, hey, we're, we're going to try to get a mental health waiver. And it's very detailed, right? You have to prove that a student athlete was affected at his previous institution. You have to show documentation that a licensed medical professional at that previous institution checked him out and said, hey, this is something that's concerning. Uh, you have to, you know, part of that for Tez Walker was that his grandmother was ailing in Charlotte. 
So you have to provide documentation that, hey, this is legit. You have to get written documentation from the athletic director of the previous institution saying, hey, everything's okay with this kid. He legitimately could utilize transferring closer to home. All these things Tez Walker provided. Every single one of them. Checked every box. Checked every single box. And there was a bunch of them. Tez Walker checked every single box. And yet, time and time again, and we don't have the details of the NCAA's denial as of Thursday morning. We do know their reasoning for three other denials. And those three other denials were about they did not believe the chronology of events spoke to mental health instead of athletic reasons. So what that means is they basically didn't think that his case file backed up the idea that mental health was one of the reasons he was transferring. They thought it was purely for athletic reasons. And so the the biggest thing for me and the biggest concern, and we can dive into the whole history of it because this should not be surprising because it's the NCAA and this is the same stuff they pulled starting in 2010. But they have a process in place about mental health. UNC and Tez Walker check all those boxes And yet the NCAA has the gall to say, yeah, even though a medical professional said that this kid has some some challenges that he needs help with, we're going to take the position that we know better, even though we're not licensed medical professionals, even though we've we've never sat down with Tez Walker with our own medical professionals to actually see if it's legit. They just decided that, yeah, we don't buy it. Um, I, I don't understand. And like I said, you know, it goes back a long, long time that the NCAA has really not cared about student athletes. Um, I listened to the Michael McAdoo court proceedings back in summer of 2011. And the NCAA, NCAA lawyer stood up and said, he has no tie to the NCAA. He's trying to make a case that he has some tie to our organization. He does not. And that was the truth mm-hmm. because the only way that Michael McAdoo could get to, U- get to the NCAA is to sue UNC as well because UNC has the tie to NCAA, not the student athlete. And this is – we've seen it time and time again. So am I surprised? No, I'm not. Am I disappointed? Yeah, you hate it for a kid like Tez Walker who, who did everything in terms of checking the boxes. And that doesn't even speak to the fact that they retroactively fit legislation to him. He should have been grandfathered in, as well as the whole situation in Central. Yes, it's just unbelievable to me. Um, you know, and somebody said in the chat about, they, they tweeted out something about the mental health of their student-athletes right before this decision came down. I mean, Greg, when we look at all the boxes he checked, it felt like reading your article, the NCAA said, no, you can't, we're not doing it because of this. And they said, okay, well, here that is. You're not going to do it because of this. Well, here that is. And they covered all those boxes. Is there any, first of all, will we ever know the actual rationale? Will there be any sort of, uh, you know, judges all the time issue decisions, and it's in writing. Supreme Court issues decisions, and there's opinions and things. Can North Carolina fans, can anybody expect any sort of explanation other than saying what the NCAA released is we don't comment on individual things, here's our rules. What can North Carolina fans or other fans of Tez Walker or Tez Walker's family, most importantly, um, expect to receive 
from the NCA in that regard? Uh, don't get your hopes up. And <laughs> one of it is, and it goes back to the, you know, the, the investigations, the, the seven years of hell, right, from 2010, 2017 that we dealt with. Everything's confidential. Um, and, and really in looking at some of the documents, in terms of the, uh, the appeal reasonings, I mean, two of them, it was like two sentences and said, as I mentioned earlier about the chronology of events, uh, not meeting you know, for, for mental health, but rather for athletic reasons. There was one lengthy, I say lengthy, it was like two paragraphs that, that really broke down uh, the issue at Central. Like that's probably the only one. And I think Tez Walker may have actually tweeted that out as well. Uh, but it just kind of got into the fact of, hey, you know, they actually had the 2021 season. So even if he had concerns in the spring of 2021, they weren't unique because everybody was scared. It's like, come on. Um, but that's, that's about the extent of it. In terms of the mental health side of it, uh, I don't know that we'll ever get an accurate and in-depth explanation for that. Yeah, how about this statement from Mac Brown? And anybody that's in the chat that hasn't read Mac Brown's statement, it's out there. Mac Brown, how dare they ever speak about the mental health of student athlete and student athlete welfare again? We've got complete rosters overhauled in the transfer portal. Coach Prime replaced 76 players in the transfer portal. Players playing their eighth year of college, not too far from Chapel Hill. Players playing in their fourth school. We've talked about those on this show before. The list goes on and on, yet Tez Walker, who's only played football at one school, isn't eligible. It makes no sense, and it never will. And Greg, I guess for me on it, it makes no sense, and it never will, because they don't have to explain their decision. You've got guys, the Wilkerson kid at Colorado, very similar, granted eligibility. I've heard and I've read so many things from other fan bases, Greg, that say, the NCAA is just sticking it back to Carolina because they couldn't stick it to them several years ago. Well, I don't know if people failed to realize, but they left Carolina on the hook for, like you said, seven years of hell during that. When I would contend they knew they couldn't do anything about that. So they just let it hang out there. Maybe a reach, but I don't know. But your thoughts on the rationale here, I mean, is there any explanation that anybody would have and also – Beyond that, is there any recourse that Tez Walker now has? All right, so there's a lot of things there to kind of dive into, and I'll try to make this brief, but I want to provide a little bit of backstory. Um, during the beginnings of the NCAA case, really during the beginnings of the AFAM case, uh, so this is a little bit after the infractions case and, and all those kind of things, um, it was not long after the Penn State deal. And basically with the Penn State situation, everybody saw what happened with Jerry Sandusky. Everybody wanted blood including the NCAA. Problem was, it was outside of the NCAA's jurisdiction with how to handle that situation. That was a legal matter. It really didn't pertain to the NCAA. But they wanted to make a show. Um, and so I'm, I'm trying to think what year it may have been. It was either 14 or 15, but uh, Carolina was playing in the CBS Sports Classic in its infancy uh, up in Chicago. And Bubba Cunningham and I got together and, and just – started talking about some of the NCAA stuff. And one thing that, that he really laid out to me, and he repeated it several times at that point in time and then over the years to follow, and it was like, you know, we're going to go through this process with NCAA. But after seeing how they handled the Penn State situation, 
we are going to make sure that they stick to their procedures and processes. North Carolina had three notice of allegations sent to them. And the reason they had three is because the first two, the NCAA did not stick to their processes. They had a, I'm trying to remember what it was called, totality of circumstances, I believe is what it was. But basically they said, well, you know, one student taking an AFM class is not a big deal. But when you start talking about hundreds of kids taking an AFM class, now it becomes a big deal. Nothing in the bylaws dealt with that. And so UNC's response was, look, number one, you have no business coming into our classrooms and telling us how to teach, how to grade, anything. But number two, this has nothing to do with any of your bylaws. And I've been through all the bylaws. I've been through all these different pages of procedures and policies. It is insane the amount of documentation they have, and yet they refuse to abide by those. And this is just another example of, wait a minute, here's the new and improved NCAA. They care about student-athletes now. And yet it's the same thing over and over again. Um, that's a critical point. The other part is I think people view the NCAA as some monolith, right? And it's not. Uh, Charlie Baker is not having any success selling it, but he has repeatedly made the point that, hey, the Division I Council is made up of a representative from all 32 conferences, and they unanimously voted to approve this legislation. His point being, it's not the NCAA's fault. It's all these universities around the country made this agreement. This is what they wanted. And there is some truth in that. Uh, but at the end of the day, you, it's all these universities, including UNC, that has to stand up. And that's where this gets to be an issue, Tommy, because during the NCAA investigation for AFAM, there were multiple people around UNC who repeated to me on occasion, hey, we just need a lifeline. We, we need some other school, maybe the ACC, to stand up and say, you know what? This is not right. Do they mess up some things? Yes, but let's handle this better. Nobody came. And the reason why is all these other universities don't really care about the NCAA other than getting their paycheck for March Madness until it becomes a bad situation for them. And then they really care. So I know a lot of fans are all up in arms thinking, yeah, this is going to be the rally cry. This is what it's going to take to upend the NCAA. Give it two weeks and see how much noise is being made outside of Chapel Hill about the Tez Walker case. Yeah. I don't have a lot of faith that anything's going to happen with that. Yeah, and – and I know I asked that asked that long-winded question. It, what's the recourse here? I mean, is it done completely? Is it done for Carolina in 2023? Um, obviously, Tez Walker has eligibility next year. He's also a legitimate NFL prospect and could certainly go to the draft if he wanted to. But is there any recourse for him now that would be immediate enough to affect this season for him. And I'm not even talking about North Carolina getting a, a great player. I'm talking about a young man getting the opportunity to play football in front of his family um, while hundreds and thousands of others do the same thing. He has to sit and watch. What can he do, if anything, Greg? So there's two things here. Number one, um, you know, when you look at the NCAA process for, for this procedure, uh, for transfer waivers, it's pretty defined in written form, but they didn't adhere to that when they went through this process. Uh, I saw four times that they had denied Walker's appeals. 
Bubba mentioned eight times. Um, and so what that means is it's not as cut and dry. Typically, if you meet with the, the committee for legislative relief, their decision is final. Well, they denied Walker's appeal back in July. And yet he's met again or he's submitted claims three times since then. So is there another window? I doubt it. But given the fact that the NCAA has been so loosey-goosey, uh, there may be an outside shot they can convince another hearing. I don't think that's going to be the way to go. I think if, if Walker wants to try to make noise here and gain eligibility for this year, he would have to consider the legal route. What does that entail? I'm not a lawyer. I don't know. Um, but I, I imagine that's something to at least consider that his group will. Um, he's, he's got some good people helping him out. So at least probably we'll take a look at that. Um, but, you know, people start talking about injunctions. And as I said, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, but it's important to note, Tez Walker has always been ineligible since he enrolled at Carolina. Uh, that's in accordance with NCAA guidelines. So um, I know injunctions typically maintain status quo. The status quo has been that he's ineligible. Um, so, you know, any, any lawyers in the chat that want to correct me on that, feel free to. Uh, but those are the things you have to take into account. But that, as of right now, last I've heard, uh, there's been no decision made on that. But that's something to look out for in the days to come. Let me read a little bit of Bubba Cunningham's statement. Seeing more than 50 student athletes transfer to one school or watching a starting quarterback play in his fourth university in his sixth year doesn't make any sense to many. Arbitrarily prohibiting a student athlete from making from competition when that student athlete has only played two seasons of football in the last five years at one school and wants to play closer to home for legitimate family and mental health reasons does not make sense. Greg, I, I ask you the rhyme or reason, and, and we'll move on to the game plan portion. And, and like I mentioned earlier, we've got Jason Staples off to the side here waiting on doing the game plan portion. And I know Jason's got some very strong opinions on this as well. Um, the rhyme or reason side of it, you, you mentioned the committee and, and there's a committee with various people from around the country. Um, I know Mike said on Monday that those people are nameless and faceless, um, but they're, they're real people and they make decisions. Are there, dis is it the same committee that makes all the decisions? Do you, do you know if that's accurate or not? Or is it a different committee for every different kid has it been a different committee for each tez walker appeal i mean that sort of the process is what's confusing for people because you mentioned earlier ncaa is not a monolith and these are not it's not one person making a decision here right and i think how you have to separate it is that there is ncaa staff on the ground in indianapolis that has various jobs right there's one group for enforcement uh, chance miller people may remember that name from 2010 he was on the enforcement staff. There's different groups, and there's one for this type of request, transfer waivers. Uh, and so when you go through the process, you work with NCAA staff to get everything submitted and to make your request for a waiver. And so what happens is, is that when UNC and Tez made that request, the NCAA staff denied it. And at that point, UNC and, and Tez were able to say, okay, we don't agree with this decision. We would like to appeal it. And as soon as an appeal goes into place, then it goes beyond the NCAA staff. Then it goes to the, uh, it's the Committee of Legislative Relief. And as you said, what that is, that is made up of seven people, and they have 
you know, everybody's on there for a certain amount of time, a couple of years typically, and it rotates off like every other committee. Um, and they are from all over the country in random roles. Typically it's compliance or uh, athletic administration, but that's where those people come from. And then they come together on these video calls and they make a decision and they meet, I think they, they meet once a week for this type of stuff, but they decided uh, to deny the appeal back in July. And even though that's supposed to be the final step, North Carolina was able to say, all right, look, we have some new information we would like to submit. Can we do that? And the NCAA said, yes, you can do that. That's called a staff reconsideration. And so twice on August 21st, and then again on August 31st, last Thursday, the NCAA staff had it back in their hands. They denied it again. And then what happened this morning, it goes back to the committee. And we've had some back and forth that maybe this was a different committee. Um, I don't know what different committee that would be, but it's NCAA, so who knows. Um, but it's a seven-person committee, just like the Committee for Legislative Relief, so I assume it's the same one. Uh, but that was the one who finally, for the first time, for the first time, actually had a conversation with Tez Walker. How about that? Yeah. He's had all these denials, and this is the first time he's actually talked to somebody. And, and that's interesting. If, if folks read Adam Smith's article on Tamari Fox, Tamari Fox did his, and he was like, I don't know who I was talking to. You know, it was just like random faceless people. Um, and they actually heard from Tez. You know, part of me says they knew what they were going to do months ago, why they continue to drag this out. Um, and then other people say, you know, why didn't they make an announcement on the ruling? To Greg's point, he was ineligible from the start. He was ineligible. They didn't have to turn around and say, well, he's still ineligible. Um, but they continued to grant uh, – you know, possibilities. And I always say, it's not the despair that gets you, it's the hope. And this NCAA has drug it out, given Tez, given North Carolina hope that they would maybe change their minds. They have not changed their minds. Greg, anything left here on Tez Walker now, currently, as we sit at 943 on September 7th, Walker's ineligible. North Carolina has a game to play, has a season to play. Anything that we can give our listeners and everybody watching this um, on this situation other than once the lawyers get involved, if they get involved, you know, who knows what happens there? Yeah, not really. I think we've pretty much covered it, Tommy. Um, just to say that, that I hate it for Tez. As you said, you know, there's a lot of opportunities here for the NCAA to do the right thing. And when you actually go through, I mean, his case file as of last weekend was 107 pages long. So think about all the documentation and all the private information. I mean, he's got his grandmother's medical chart in there. Um, yeah. The amount of personal information, and it's not like everything was submitted at once. I mean, there, there are submissions dating back to February. Um, and it's just a long list of things that he's, he's had to do. So it's, it's taken a lot of time. Um, I know that during training camp, it really affected him. Just talking to some people kind of around the program. Um, you can kind of tell it was weighing on him, which you hate that for the kid. Um, so I, I just hope he can find some resolution, whatever that may be. Um, and he, he's got a bright future ahead of him. Uh, he's a very talented kid. And whether that's at the NFL next year, whether that's back at Carolina for uh, you know what would be a tremendous season, I think the fans would really rally around him. Um, bright, brighter days are ahead, but just hate that he's had to go, go through this. 
Yeah, the last thing I will read is what uh, Mac Brown said about the NCAA. I don't know if I've ever been more disappointed in a person, a group of people, or an institution that I am with the NCAA right now. It's clear the NCAA is about process and couldn't care less about young people it's supposed to be supporting. And then he goes down and says something to the effect of, I have no faith in the NCAA. NCAA makes the decision Tez Walker is ineligible for the 2023 season. It's ridiculous. Well, I, I mean, I, the party, Mac. Yeah, I was going to say, I have, I have no words. And Greg, to you know, our discussions, it's not surprising at all. And, and that's what's ridiculous about this whole thing is you see guys getting declared eligible and playing elsewhere. It's not surprising when it's North Carolina involved. It just stinks for a young man like Tez Walker to have the opportunity. And now he's stuck. He can't play anywhere this year. Right, and that's that's the challenging thing, too, because I know a lot of people kind of point to the Wilkerson kid at Colorado. And, like, why is he eligible? And to your point earlier, Tommy, um, about everything being so secretive, we have no idea what allowed Wilkerson to get approved. It would be beneficial to know, but the NCAA doesn't want that information out there. Um, and so what's left is people are saying, well, he, he played at a couple of different places. Why is he eligible and, and Tez Walker's not? We have no idea. We can guess, but because the NCAA is so secretive and keeps everything so confidential, you can't make a legitimate case based on what somebody else has done, which I guess is why they do it. But um, it just leads to more questions and answers and a lot more distrust of the NCAA. Yeah. What eventually happens in the dark will come to light. And Tez Walker, in the meantime, ineligible for North Carolina. We're going to move on to the game plan portion because we've got a game to talk about. I'm going to bring in Jason Staples as I do the Johnny T-shirt read. I failed to mention them early. I'm going to try to do this all at once. Johnny T-shirt and JohnnyT-shirt.com, of course, great friends of this podcast, great friends of Inside Carolina. They need to sell some number nine jerseys, I think. I think folks would agree with Johnny T-shirt selling a mm. nine jersey. They'd probably sell out tomorrow. But either way, go to them. You get your 10% off your order if you're an Inside Carolina Premium subscriber. Let the national guys pay the bills. It's the game plan. We'll get to that portion next. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What's up, y'all? This is four-time NBA champ Andre Iguodala. Yo, and this is his best friend, the Ohio State legend, Evan Marcel Turner the first. Every Wednesday, we drop a new episode on our show, Point Four. We're talking basketball, business, and all the culture in between. From locker room stories to some basketball analysis from those who've been in the game. Now, it is a do-bad. Do average 29 and 11. God, what it take to be an all-star? A win. Subscribe to Point Forward, the podcast, so you don't miss a thing. All right, boys. Uh, we had almost 600 people in here listening to Greg spin and opine on the NCA and Ted's Walker situation. Jason, as I bring you in, um, I know your opinion, but I'll let you give it. 
go ahead and get in on the party. The NCAA is, I remember Brian Bosworth wearing a shirt. What did it say? I can't remember exactly. I saw the Netflix thing, not too terrible. You know, the National Communist Organization or whatever Bosworth said. Uh, I think somebody else from North Carolina had a scam shirt instead of NCAA. Jason, what do you think about all this? And for my education, what about the Florida State guy that's in the same situation? He's still ineligible, or do we expect to see him run out on Saturday? Oh, there's been basically no expectation of him getting eligible. And, you know, the only real hope was that maybe if uh, if Tez won his case on appeal, that because, you know, of all the players out there that, that were appealing this kind of decision, Tez Walker had by far the best case because it was just such an obvious thing. The guy only played for one other institution. And he didn't play for one of the places that he was enrolled because they 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 canceled the season. So, I mean, how you treat this as a second transfer I and and then to do that after the, you know, the grandfather and grandfathering in the new rule. I, I just, you know, that that part is ridiculous. And he had such a strong case. And the general I think the general hope from the folks in Tallahassee was, well, you know, if Tez can win his case, then maybe Jackson, you know, can those cases have been kind of connected. Maybe he could win. But the, there's been a lot of pessimism down there in general about that. Uh, you know, the folks that I'd talked to about it a month ago were saying, yeah, this is basically a zero zero percent chance. The NCAA, there's no way they do the right thing here. And I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's where you are. And the, the craziest thing to me is the NCAA changes the guidance on this for, for the future after these guys transfer and then says, okay, but you, now that you've transferred, you're under the new rule that didn't exist when you transferred. And by the way, you can't transfer back, and yeah, you're stuck. Yeah, and you're not allowed to transfer back because that, then that would be a third transfer, right? So, you know, it's <laughs> double secret probation stuff. And then they'll take a guy like, you know, Mason uh, uh, Mason Smith. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the, the, the defensive tackle from LSU. Uh, guy, a guy like Mason Smith who is a – he he basically signed some autographs in 2021, right before the NIL stuff was permitted by the NCAA. But because that happened before the rule changed, he had to sit out the first game against Florida State. But it was only one game. Right, it was only one game. But here's the thing, like, so if it is going to help the athlete to be under the old rule rather than the new rule, then you apply the new rule. And if it's going to help the athlete to be under the new rule rather than the old rule, then you apply the old rule. In each case, the NCAA does what is most harmful to the, to the student athlete. And one of the things that's crazy to me, I mean, uh, the Knowles uh, 24-7 site, got their hands on the letter that the NCAA sent to the, uh, to the um, uh, c- congressional representatives that had written the NCAA on behalf of 
uh, the, the defensive tackle down there on behalf of Jackson. I don't know if you have you guys seen that. Mm-mm. It's I say mind on, your business. It's posted on Twitter. It, it's worth taking a look at because it's it is something. Because I mean, they they basically say, yeah. So you know, um, of course. Uh, mental health issues are important to us and everything. And, yeah, you know, it, it may actually even be the case that, you know, a guy who is a football player and that's a big part of his life, not being able to play football might actually be something, you know, that is is not real helpful in that. But it shouldn't matter because, uh, you know, universities have resources for mental health stuff. So he can he can he can plug into those resources and uh, and 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 he'll be just fine. You know, and it's one of those like, wait, so you're you're saying that let's just go ahead and take away the the things that are really valuable to this guy, the stuff that matters to him. But don't worry, you know, the university has an, has some therapists on retainer so he can he can go to therapy if that and, and, and get help if he is you know struggling with his mental health, even, you know, even though this this sort of thing might help, you know. He can go and, and do some talk therapy or something because that that has a real real good track record on that stuff. I, I, it's just staggering, staggering to me. And for them to for them to seriously say that the way that they say it in that letter, and, and I'm not doing it justice, the way that they say it in that letter, it, it, it is. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's not. And, and Greg, he's trying to make sense of the NCAA decisions. We've been around long enough. No. <laughs> There is no sense there. I was looking up, trying to look it up while you were uh, talking about it, Jason. Uh, you know, I don't. Need, I I've tried not to say anything over the top negative about the NCA, but it's ridiculous. But everybody in the chat understands that. It's hard to say something over the top when the decisions are so outrageously and obviously bad and unjust. Yeah. Like, how do you go over the top when it's like? This is the kind of decision that if you were doing like a satirical movie to make the NCAA look like a bunch of uh, out of touch, unjust buffoons, this would be the kind of thing that you would add in as a plot twist of like these guys just making this kind of decision and, and, and not, you know, not making the right call. This, this is absolutely the sort of thing where, you know, th- if this was done in fiction, people would be like, well, I mean, the villain is the, the villains here are just kind of unbelievably <laughs> out of touch. Like it, they, they went a little far with this. Well, they, they enter these situations looking for reasons to deny instead of looking for reasons to grant. Yeah. And I think that's the, that's the key distinction. Yeah. And, and instead of looking for reasons to help student athletes, they look for reasons who they champion all the time. I mean, do you know how many student athletes will go pro in something other than the sport they play? And then they constantly do the do the difference. And, you know, I, I know we're talking about it because it's a North Carolina player and all, but it's happened all around the country. And then inexplicably you have guys that have no business still playing college sports that are still eligible. So I, I found it. it. Here's this pair. Here's the, these couple paragraphs. So it's, it's got this whole. That said, 
being close to family is important, and these decisions can be stressful. While I am happy to hear that this student-athlete is now closer to home, had a sick parent, and will be able to participate in athletics next year, the association has made recent changes to ensure support is provided for student-athletes experiencing these difficult circumstances. That includes requirements that schools provide mental health and other services to student-athletes while they take classes on their scholarships at these exceptional schools. While he is on campus, his school will have resources available to offer support and access to increased programming in areas related to mental health, academic support, and career counseling and life skills. In other words, suck it up. It'll be okay. Well, we, and, and honestly, if they had said that, I would have less problem. With them being so condescending the way they were, I don't know, I'm done with them. Right. Part of this is like, <laughs> I, I am really frustrated by the way that we treat resources to help people, so therapy and other other aspects, as though those are mental like that's mental health. Like mm-hmm. in many cases, that's not actually the thing that people need. Like if somebody has, you know, uh, uh, anxiety or things related to something else you know sometimes it's not going to therapy and talking through it that's the problem it's actually removing the stimulus or eliminating the problem that's causing the anxiety in the first place yeah that that generally does more and i i and the ncaa has the sole ability to do just that and they're not a governmental entity nor are they accountable to anyone yeah, and that's and why that, I asked Greg, will, will we ever hear the rationale as to why they deny Tez Walker's appeal and, and, you know, deny others? If they would just issue opinions as to why, it would be so much easier to understand. Might not agree with it, but at least offer the explanation they don't do it, and yet they double down consistently on their ability to screw it up for the one one group that they're supposed to be looking after and that's the student athlete y'all want to talk some football carolina nap state 5 15 on saturday afternoon it's tough to really think about football when you think about situations like this i mean but we got to move on the team's got to play um, tez would want them to move on it'd be nice to see him on the field but greg when you're looking at this game last year everybody We'll always remember that one. People have forgotten 2019 that App State came into Chapel Hill and beat a team that was in a good spot out of the gate. Your overall thoughts on this one, I guess my biggest thing is how does North Carolina focus on their opponent um, when this is a young man who is a friend of everybody's and a big part of this team? Is it a galvanizing force? Is it a distraction, quote-unquote, um, your thoughts on that aspect of it going into this ball game? Because App State's not gonna, they're not gonna lay down. North Carolina's gonna have to put them down when they come to Chapel Hill. No, I think it's I think it's galvanizing. I think that's a good word. Um, you know, regardless of the sport, whenever there's bad news, whether it be an injury or this type of situation, the next game out, typically you see just a burst flood of emotion uh, that proves to be very beneficial, kind of an, an adrenaline. Uh, rush. And I think that's what we're going to see. Uh, I think everybody's kind of rallied around Taz. They understand what kind of kid he is, uh, how talented he is, which that's going to hurt North Carolina down the road. 
I don't think that's going to be that big of a deal on Saturday. Um, but, but I think it will help North Carolina. And as you mentioned, Tommy, when you go back to that game last year, uh, North Carolina gave up 40 points in the fourth quarter. That was the worst <laughs> quarter of defense that I've, I've ever seen live. And nothing um, they can do will ever take that away. Correct. And, but, and, but, <laughs> but you can, uh, you can use this as a opportunity to say, Hey, we had a good start to the year against South Carolina. Uh, I mean, if I'm Gene Chizik, I'm, I'm showing that game on repeat. And this is a game you're aiming to shut App State out. I mean, I think it's to that extent. Uh, you mentioned, Tommy, the 2019 game. That App State team was really good. They finished the year 13-1. and one. Um, Last year, however, while that was an exciting game up in Boone, that team finished the year at 6-6. Six and six. That was not a good football team. Uh, they've got 11 starters back. They lost their starting quarterback in the first game of the year. They trailed Gardner-Webb with four minutes to play in the third quarter. Uh, this is not a program that has maintained what Scott Satterfield built. And with everything that we've already mentioned, with what happened last year up in Boone, with Tez Walker, with North Carolina coming off a statement game against South Carolina, uh, I think this has the potential to be a bloodbath. Mm, Greg, with big words. Jason, how, how, how important is it for North Carolina to stack a bloodbath on top of a butt-kicking that we saw in Charlotte, that should have been a lot worse. How, how important, especially for the defense? So my old coach had an old <laughs> saying that was, first, you lose big. Then, you lose close. Then, you win close. Then, you win big. Right? It's the, the, pro, the progression of building a program. And... One Greg Barnes wrote an article earlier this year, just before the season started, talking about how if North Carolina is going to take the next step, what's the first thing they have to do? What's the main thing they have to do? Stop, stop playing so, so many dang one-score games. <laughs> you got to double-tap those, those teams and put them out in the first and second quarter and blow teams that don't belong in the field with you out. You've got to do that. And the way to do that is to start doing it. <laughs> you build the talent, and then there is a there is a mentality. There is a blood there is a bloodthirsty mentality, where certain teams you know, like uh oh, you get behind that team and they're putting a second one in you. They're gonna find a way to close the door, right? That that you 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 know. You you better you better make sure you you hang with this team because if they get the opportunity they're not miss they're not going to miss, right? You don't fall behind Alabama, mm-hmm. right? If you're going to beat Alabama, you better be with them the whole game because you fall you fall ten points behind. It's they're they're gonna they're gonna go up seventeen and they're gonna they're gonna slow cook you. They're gonna put you right out, right? That's the way that works. Uh, and so I think, first of all. The first week was a great success in that. You you play a middle-of-the-road SEC team that you're better than, and you beat them by multiple scores in a game that was really out of reach by the fourth quarter. 
right? And, you know, by mid-third quarter, I think it was pretty evident who was going to win that game. So that's a good start. How do you stack on that? Well, you know, how many coaches have said sustaining success is harder than getting success in the first place? The next step as a program has to be coming out and taking care of business and, win, and, and being up by multiple scores going into half and then building on that in the third quarter and starting to play backups in the fourth quarter. You start seeing that, and this, this, then you, we can start talking about this team getting close to turning a corner as a program. Now, of course, you know, next year you don't have Drake May. Next year, you know, a number of other players – who are important, you know, said Gray, some others aren't going to be out there. So you have to sustain that turned corner, and that can be difficult. But that's the way that works. I think you've got to do that. And and another example is in the ACC right now. If you look at the last two years, two years ago, Florida State played in a bunch of one-score games. Lost some of them, won some of them, but, you know, got a couple of quality wins. Last year, played in a series of one-score games early in the year, and then you could see some, somehow the switch kind of turned at the, around the bye week in mid-year, and they just obliterated the second half of their schedule up until Florida and, and, and Oklahoma, who were both more talented teams and stuck with them much better. But they obliterated the, the lesser teams on their schedule the second half of last year and that's one of the reasons why folks were looking at that and going, they're returning all those guys this year, or virtually all those guys. That team might actually be really good because they've figured out how to, how to close it out when they, when they have a lead. They've figured out how to do that. And then you look at how they open the year against LSU, and, and, it, and it looks like that may actually be the case because they now didn't just do it to one of those lesser teams like a Miami. They did it to a legitimately good team. And that's the step you have to take. So to me, if, if North Carolina is going to be serious about contending for an ACC championship, about playing for bigger goals, this is exactly what you have to do in this game. You have to, you have to go out and you have to make a statement that, yeah, this kind of team doesn't belong with us anymore. Greg, does North Carolina have that in them? We've, we've seen them have success and then not play well. I mean, it feels a little different this year being around the program and being, you know, around practices and around the coaching staff. Um, you know, are we still in the show me stage or did South yes. Carolina sort of get out of the show me? No, still in the show me stage for sure. Um, but it's a step forward, right? Because if you go back two years ago, Carolina was top 10 in the country, went into Lane Stadium against an average Virginia Tech team. It's kind of like South Carolina. You know, South Carolina will probably get to a bowl game. I don't think that's a very good team. But you have to play well to win those games. So you, if you don't play well, you have a chance to lose. Carolina did not play well up in Blacksburg and kind of got humbled a little bit and never really was able to build off of that. But yet, Saturday night, they didn't play elite. They played really good. And as Jason said – yeah, the game was was not as close as what the score said. Um, and I, I'm interested to see, you know, if you go back to the 2015 South Carolina game, defensively those games were, were pretty similar. Uh, South Carolina scored 17 in both. But even though North Carolina lost that game, and if you remember that was the game, I think Marquise had a couple interceptions in the red zone. In the end zone. In the end zone, yeah. yeah. Um, 
But I, I vividly remember that next Monday during the press conferences, uh, Ryan Switzer, Elijah Hood, and somebody else were sitting there. And they were as confident as they could be. And they're like, man, you know what? We just we just screwed the screwed the bed there. Like, not a big deal. We know we're a lot better than that. And as soon as I heard that, I was like, whoa, wait a minute. This is different. Like, even though they lost, you know, they didn't tuck their tail and run and hit hide, right? They they said, yeah, we made some mistakes, but we're a lot better than that. And they knew it. And we saw what kind of happened. Um, so a little bit of that after the game Saturday night. So they need to build on it for sure. First step, you know, take care of business. What should be a, a, a pretty big win for them this weekend. But then you got some tough games coming up with, with Minnesota and Pittsburgh. And I think if they play well in those games and can win those games, well, now we're probably moving out of the show me stage. It's like, okay, now can they maintain that high level as we get into October and November? I thought one of the interesting things, um, you know, Carolina fans were euphoric after that South Carolina game. And, you know, we did our game plan and we, we talked about some, you know, Gene Chizik mentioned warts of the defense and all, but we talked about it a little bit. But overall, it was, you know, this is the best they've looked in X. Well, Mac and the coaches realize they have a lot to work work on. Jason, from what you saw from the defense against South Carolina, what exactly needs to be worked on that can be significantly improved? I mean, let's be honest. If they have nine sacks and 16 tackles for loss again in the game, um, we're in like, who are these guys territory? Um, so that's not realistic every week. But what did you see that needs to be cleaned up specifically from the defense in that South Carolina game that they can take forward against App State, against Minnesota, against Pitt? Well, I mean, I think the number one thing is there were a few opportunities, especially in coverage, where they, they had the chance to finish plays and they just came a little short. So you think about a guy like Tayon Holloway being in great position multiple times and giving up catches. Just finish. Just just that little extra 2% necessary to win that matchup, absolutely. Uh, a second one, I think, is communication and coverage. There are a few times where I thought uh, they they could have done a better job in terms of with South Carolina in, in bunch or with, with, you know, different switch type concepts, motion, that sort of thing where they could have, they could have passed that off better. Uh, I think also there were still, there, there, there were still times where against, against the, um, in, in the pass rush, there were guys that, that whiffed initially. Now they generally had another guy there to clean it up, but you want to see those guys get on the ground the first time, uh, and just in general, I mean, there, there were a couple times where I think they were misaligned or, you know, a guy was just just slightly out of out of out of his spot uh, against a, a given formation. There's things that they can clean up. But uh, like you said, uh, the, you know, 16 tackles for loss and nine sacks have a way of hiding a lot of that. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, that's a big part of it. I also I think I also think that the. uh the safeties could have been a little bit more active in terms of affecting affecting the game with some of the stuff that South Carolina did underneath with, with some of the looks that Carolina had that brought the safeties into coverage. Uh, in particular, I thought Chapman probably would like to have a couple plays back. Um, but, you know, I think, he, I think he'll be fine. And I think, again, as they get further into the season, the 
I mean, you got to remember how many, how many of these guys in the secondary are just new. Yeah. I mean, and new to their spot. Uh, I, I also thought Huzzy, in certain cases, you know, he's played in the slot. You know, he, he'd taken a lot of reps in the slot since he'd been in camp, but you know, only the last week or so, week week and a half since uh, he basically was forced into there because of the injury, uh, full time. There were some times where you know he 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 needed to be just slightly different in terms of his positioning and, and almost gave up a couple big plays as a result. So, so just a little bit of cleanup on some of that stuff. And again, communication with outside corners between him and outside corners, some, some things mostly to clean up on that end of things. Yeah. Offensively, Greg, same question. I mean, Drake through the two interceptions, that's the first thing Chip Lindsay mentioned. This first thing Drake mentioned, um, he made some plays. Running backs made some plays. I think British Brooks is the clear number one. Uh, you know, I I didn't think that would happen, but I think he's the clear number one. Um, offensively, what do you see from North Carolina? How could they? They could have beaten South Carolina forty-five to seventeen if they would have finished some drives in the second half, especially the fourth quarter. Where does North Carolina improve offensively? You think from week one to week two? Well, I think that the fact that the Tez Walkers. Likely not going to be eligible, right? Right now, he's not eligible for for this season. Um, we'll have to see if there's any strings they can pull. But but let's just assume he's he's done for the year. Uh, North Carolina needs to figure out you know, what is there going to be their game plan in terms of stretching the field vertically. Uh, watching the game the other night, you know, uh, I think the wide receiver position um, is probably the, the weak part of this offense, and that's something that's going to be they're going to need to address. So the fact the offensive line did not give up a sack is, is good news. I thought South Carolina's defensive front was pretty solid. Um, I, I, I liked what Chip Lindsey was able to do running the ball. I agree. I thought British Brooks looked really good. I think people kind of missed that about last year. Is the British was gone the whole year. Uh, Caleb Hood, who looked really good in camp, he got hurt early. And so they had a lot of young guys they were trying to play, a lot of inexperienced guys, and it really just never came together for them. So now they've got experienced backs back into the fold. Uh, they're doing some creative things in terms of running the ball. Uh, they're getting, getting more people at the point of attack, which is important. So I think from that standpoint, they should be solid, uh, which is going to help open up the passing game. Now it's a matter of, okay, who can Drake may trust in the passing game? We know Kobe Pesor has done a really good job. Uh, you know, end of last year, they looked pretty good the other night. Who else is going to step up to help? Because if there's just one guy, uh, then you can bracket that player and you can make it really tough. And, you know, of course, Nate McCollum will have to see exactly how he is whenever he comes back, if that's this weekend or not. Um, but you hope he's a guy that can be a difference maker. But what do you do on those deep routes? You know, Antoine Green was a special talent in terms of running down the field. Uh, that's what they thought Tez Walker was going to be able to do. Who can do that? And those are the things you have to figure out. And I think a game like Saturday is a good opportunity to experiment there a little bit. I agree. I still think Kobe Pesor is the guy. Um, he, he's the one that got loose for the open touchdown against South Carolina. Other than that, I didn't really see a ton of separation downfield. They didn't really go that way a, a lot. We've been at this for almost an hour. Of course, Tez Walker ineligible for 2023 as it stands now. Jason Staples, Greg Barnes, and I'm Tommy Ashley with the game plan sponsored by Johnny T-Shirt. I think we need to just go ahead and get into it, Jason. I'm going to get in and let you just spill it. This is what's going to happen on Saturday at 515. Uh, we're not going to talk about injuries. 
injuries affect every team. Uh, you know, North Carolina probably has some that will show up on Saturday. Um, we'll see. But App State comes to Keenan Stadium. Jason, what happens? Not prediction, No predictions yet, but what happens um, when the ball goes up at 5 o'clock or 5.15? Weird starting time, by the way. One, one thing I do think that we're going to see is it'll look a lot different with App State on offense and Carolina on defense this year from what it did last year. Uh, I don't think you're going to see wide receivers running wide open with nobody around them in the secondary a whole lot. Uh, and I do think that Carolina's, Carolina's going to get a lot of pressure in this game, I think. I think one of the, one of the key things in this game to look at is, is App State's replacing both of their tackles from last year. And they had pretty good offensive line last year. And remember, that, Greg, you said this was not a good football team last year, this App State team, that because they went 6-6. Six and six. And on the whole, yeah, their body of work wasn't that great. But you got to remember, they played – that early early slate for them was brutal last year. Just in terms of the physicality and, you know, I think the wins against North – or the, the win against Texas A&M and the at, near – At Texas A&M. At Texas A&M. And the near win with North Carolina, those were physical games for them. And that took a lot out of them. And by mid-year, I think they were just spent. And they had some injuries and, and all of that by that point. And this is, you know, one of the differences between, you know, Power 5 football and usual Group of 5 football. You know, Group of 5 teams, you know, you know one-game scenario, the best Group of 5 teams can often compete against sort of upper, you know, second-tier you know, you're not, they're not normally competing with a, with a, you know, fully locked and loaded and weaponized Alabama. Like that's not happening, but you know, the, the, the next tier, they, they can generally compete, but two or three of those in a row and they get worn down. They just don't have the players. And so I think the, 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 the app state team that, that North Carolina played early in the year was a pretty good football team. Uh, I think by the end of the year, they were a shell of what they were in that first month. And, and, and I think we need to take that into account. And one of the reasons that they were a good football team, you could look at what they did against Carolina and against Texas A&M last year. They held up up front on that offensive line in both games. Carolina didn't get a whole lot of pressure on them. Now, Carolina didn't get a whole lot of pressure on anybody last year. But Texas A&M didn't move them and, you know, didn't get pressure. And they weren't great at pressure either last year. They're, they're also another really improved team in that respect this year. But they held up, and I think those tackles that were a big part of that, and now they're replacing those two guys with guys that are younger and less experienced and I think not quite as good as those guys were. And I think Carolina's a lot better on the edge. And uh, Carolina's also much healthier on the defensive interior than they were going into that game. You remember last year, Car- Carolina was, was really banged up on the, on the interior of the defensive line going into that game. And so App was able to be balanced. I think in this one, North Carolina's defensive line controls the game essentially from the first quarter on. I think App's going to have more trouble running the football, and I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on the, on, on the new quarterback, the JUCO transfer. His name is escaping me right now. Joey I, Aguilar. Yeah, Aguilar. Right. Uh, I, think, I think that's going to be the, diff- the biggest difference in this game from last year. And I think offensively, Carolina will be able to move it like they, much like they did last year. Yep. Yep. Tommy, the two points kind of to 
to follow up on what Jason said there that I think kind of stand out. Uh, Gardner-Webb last week. Gardner-Webb was 7-6 and six in FCS last year. They played App State last week. They got pressure on 41.4% of the dropbacks. Gardner-Webb did. Uh, the other set that I think is relevant, App State has a really good running back, Nate Noel, um, veteran guy, all-conference type guy. He, he had a good game against Carolina last year. He had 114 yards rushing against Gardner-Webb, which is solid, 4.8 yards per carry. But he also had 15 broken tackles. So on one hand, yeah, that's impressive. He broke 15 tackles. On the other hand, he broke 15 tackles and still only averaged 4.8 yards per carry against Gardner-Webb. Um, you know, maybe Gardner-Webb's really good. Maybe App State just kind of had a, an off game. But when you look at those two stats, uh, you have to imagine Carolina feels pretty good about their their opportunities to slow down the run, and then once you do that, you can get after the quarterback. Yeah, watching uh, that game, I did not get the impression that Gardner Webb was uh, a bunch of world beaters. <laughs> yeah, Noel can play. I mean, he went 52 yards out of the gate against North Carolina last year. Um, but that's a great stat. This is why Greg Barnes is solid at everything is – yeah, he had 100 and whatever. He had 116, 115 yards rushing, but he broke two dozen tackles and only averaged four, you know. So those kind of stats are just like make your head spin. North Carolina will need to stop the run, get after the quarterback. So how's it go down? Uh, I mean, Greg, I'll let you lead with it. You called it a potential bloodbath earlier in the show. Are we still there? Does North Carolina need that? For North Carolina to show you, quote-unquote show you, does it need to be that way on Saturday? And it could be a weather game as well, but that's just another excuse. Right. Uh, I don't think they, they need to uh, to you know, show it to fans, to show it to us as media members. I think it's for them. I, I think the opportunity is there for them to – this could be a close game, right? I mean, it's App State. It's a in-state affair. If App State comes out and lands some blows early, it could be competitive. I think Carolina is going to win regardless. You know, maybe if it's tight late, yeah, you give them credit for getting the win. But I think this is a game, and, and Jason kind of hit on it. If they come out and execute early, they should be able to get you know, maybe a two-touchdown lead second quarter and pretty much coast. Uh, the other side I wanted to throw out in terms of App State's defensive front, I mean, they, re they replaced seven starters on defense, uh, only have two guys in the front seven coming back. They did not get a sack against Gardner-Webb. And Gardner-Webb threw the ball 46 times. Wow. Um, again, you know, maybe Gardner-Webb's you know, a lot better. Maybe they're the Florida A&M game, right, last year. They looked so good in the opener against Carolina. Well, Gardner-Webb um, did throw the football. They got rid of it quickly. Yeah. Uh, you know, their offense, they, they, they get it out of their quarterback's hands really quickly. So there weren't a lot of opportunities there. Right. They still, a zero is still a zero, Jason. Yeah, and still no pre and still not much pressure <laughs> even in those cases. And you Correct. can oftentimes get pressure even if they're even quarterback is getting rid of it. Yeah, they had they had nine nine hurries. Um so I just think you know, North Carolina should dominate the line on both sides, which is crazy for us to say that, right? On on both sides, but they did it against South Carolina. Um so while I'm not sold on South Carolina, I think South Carolina is a better team than App State. And I just think this is an opportunity after that good performance in Charlotte. This is a game that I think North Carolina is going to win in the trenches. They've got much better talent at the skill position uh, on offense. 
And I just think this game is one that is going to get away from App State pretty quick. You got a score for me? I'll give you a score. Let's see. I think North Carolina is going to win this one. Uh, I don't see Chip Lindsey going full scoreboard like Phil Longo, uh, but I've got this one at 42-17. to 42-17. Greg Barnes has North Carolina on Saturday against App State. Jason Staples, what happens? So – um, one thing that hasn't come up yet in, in this podcast is the, um, the observation that App State is also, play, is also uh, playing with two new coordinators this year, right? So de- offensive and defensive coordinator changes from last year. Uh, anybody, so do either of you uh, remember who their, their new offensive coordinator is? Ricky Bobby. Look, nope. And where he came from. Don't do this to us. Greg Frank, will get you. Frank Ponce. And he was the, uh, the the quarterbacks and passing game coordinator last year at Miami. Aye. That's right. There you go. Okay. So do either of you remember anything about the, the passing game at Miami last year? I'm sorry, is that a good thing? <laughs> now, in fairness, Ponce is a guy that coached at App State previous to that and was a part of a successful, largely successful staff under the, the last coordinator. So they brought him back basically to, to keep the same system that they've been running. So in fairness, but I mean, I just can't help saying like, if he's bringing the, that my, that vaunted Miami passing 2022 passing game to, <laughs> to play that that's, um that's not good. So, um, in any case, that's another thing to think about, though, is that even if you are essentially maintaining continuity with, with systems, you're still dealing with adjusting to two new coordinators as well. And I think that's also something to consider. Uh, I, I agree with, with, with Greg that this is going to be a this is going to be a game where, where essentially it boils down to Carolina. I think they're at the point where they're going to win up front, especially on defense, and that that essentially sets the tone for the game. Uh, and when you win up front on defense by by the amount that I think Carolina is going to in this game, it's much harder to get upset. And uh, and and, it, and you end up you know you end up starting to 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 win by more. Uh, I, my my score is actually really close to Greg's. Um, not really surprised surprising there, I suppose. Um, I think this is going to be a, uh, maybe you know you might see. Uh, Chip Lindsay step on the on the gas a little more than than you might expect. I don't think there's a whole lot of uh, inclination that he has to, uh, to 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 put the to put the governor on or the brake pedal on when they're rolling. He wants this offense to score points, but you are right. I don't think he's going to aim for sixty or anything like that. They're going to run the football when they get up, uh, and I do think with the new clock rules and, and all that, that may lead to a little lower score for Carolina. I'm going to go with something like 38 to 13 for my for my score, North Carolina in that, and running the football a good bit in this game. I think they want to, if they get up, let's say by 14 points in the second quarter, and they're starting to pull away, I I would not be surprised because it's what I would do. I would not be surprised if they essentially start treating the game as an opportunity to really work on the running game and really trying to pound the, the ball, feed the running backs, and get into a rhythm up front, maybe test out some other offensive line lineups that they want to 
see if maybe they can get better uh, by moving some pieces around in the second half. That's the sort of thing I would do. If I go up by 21 points in the third quarter, I'm starting to tinker. And I'm starting to want to run the football to, to do some of the stuff that I think I'm going to need if I'm going to, if I'm going to beat a Clemson later in the year, if I'm going to play a Florida state or, or, or a Clemson or, you know, a Duke in the, um, in the ACC championship game, I need to, I need to know that I have that balance. And, and I think that's something that they're probably likely to do. And that's where you're going to end up with something maybe lower than 40. Yeah. Tommy. And uh, I'm not superstitious at all, at all, but I am going to completely jinx this because I'm going to make this comment. Uh-huh. Uh, we haven't, we haven't had this conversation in a couple of years, but just listen to Jason talk about, you're making adjustments. Mac Brown is adamant, uh, and he's done this his entire career, but he's going to play his his starting quarterback at least through the third quarter. So if Carolina gets into any games coming up, not just talking about Saturday, <laughs> and Carolina's got a big lead on on the team in the third quarter, and fans are saying, why don't you put in the backup? The reason why <laughs> is that Mac Brown doesn't do that. He waits till the fourth quarter. Uh so having said that, you can probably scrap my score prediction, <laughs> but I wanted to get that out there before before people start asking those questions. Yeah, I mean, once upon a time, I would say this game would be in the 50s to the teens or something, but I'm still in the show me. I'm not sure about the clock rules. I'm not sure about North Carolina's ability to close it out and finish it. I thought they should have beaten South Carolina, like I said, 45 to – 17. I'm going to go, Jason, you were kind of right on mine, so I'll change mine a little bit. I'm going to go 40 to 15. How about that? That'll get me <laughs> some scorigami scores. Some Four- math to get to that. Yeah, really. Uh, there's going to be some something weird happening. It'll, it'll be in the weather. Somebody mentioned a Power Echo scoop and score, maybe a muffed kick, or somebody goes for two, but 40 to 15. For Carolina, um, I, I just think North Carolina needs to set an example in this game. And I can't believe we're talking about that because going into the season, we were just hoping that the defense would be a little bit better than they were last year. Um, I'd like to see them stack a good, solid performance. Um, yeah, Preston, I should have said it. It's going to be 12-0 and 0 or 12-0. I'm not there yet, Preston. It's not happening. Um, as far as injuries, folks keep asking in the chat. We'll find out, you know, most are game time decisions. Um, the old famous thing is everybody's day-to-day, aren't we all? We're all day-to-day. So we'll find out more about who's playing. But like I said before the South Carolina game, it should not matter who's on the field for North Carolina. They should handle business. We will see what happens on Saturday at 5.15. Join us for Inside Carolina Live from the Bowls lot. As long as it doesn't thunderstorm and lightning, I'll be out there. Joey and I will be out there recording from 2 to 4 in the Bowls lot. Check us out there. Come get some swag. We've got some cool little footballs with Inside Carolina on it. Fun times. Greg Barnes is always excellent. Read his articles. Listen to his comments on this show. This will, We'll split this off and have this YouTube up as well. Jason Staples, I mean, the film breakdowns were fabulous, man. I learn yeah. a lot every week. And uh, they're worth the price of admission in Inside Carolina Premium. And also, find a North Carolina fan, take them to the App State game. We don't need to see too many App State fans in that building. There was a lot in 2019. Need to limit that, folks. I need to have a clean bowls lot when we do the Inside Carolina Live. Uh, Make it happen. Jason Gregg, Johnny T-Shirt. Thanks, fellas.